Good morning and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers discussion. I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith, and our guest for the week is Nick Griffin from Munro Partners. Hi, Drew. Hi, Nick. Hey, Jamie. Every week we interview investment leaders, fund managers, um, portfolio managers, CEOs, chairmen, uh, anyone that we think, Drew and I think, will bring you closer to making a better investment decision. In this, in this session, we have Nick Griffin, who is the CIO and founder of Munro Partners, a Melbourne-based specialist global equity market uh, manager. After opening in 2016, Munro has over $2 billion under management. We first met Nick about seven or eight years ago at a conference and uh, I, was, I was the host and we had, I think, Kerr Nielsen and Hamish from Magellan and I was after a bunny to be the third person on the panel and I encouraged young Nick to get up uh, against these two legends. Um, after the session, it, it was, uh, the best speaker was actually Nick. So Nick's ability to not just articulate his views, but articulate themes that are going to play out um, and then how to play those themes, you know, really uh, showed what uh, you know, Nick, Nick was made of. He wasn't at Munro at that point. He was at K2 Asset Management. And from that moment on, Drew and I kind of built a relationship with Nick and still proud that it's uh, going on now. Um, Drew will introduce Nick a little bit further, but uh, let, let for everyone that's listening, um, I just want to run through what the next hour will bring. Um, as I said, Drew will talk, will introduce Nick, not just Nick, but his fund, <clears throat> where it fits into our core portfolio and why we use Nick's fund. And then I'll ask Nick 10 quick fire questions to open him up. Um, Nick's, once you get to know Nick, he's not a person that normally needs to uh, get opened up, but you know, we'll see how we go. And then we'll talk about the fund, the strategy, and then uh, individual stocks. So over to you, Drew. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, I think good point. Uh, best place to start is why why we picked Munro uh, in K2 and Nick before it. Uh, in our view, he's probably one of the leading thematic investors in Australia. I might say maybe the world as well, Nick, or is that might be a little bit too I'll, aggressive? I'll, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> To us, yeah, as Jamie was saying, is an early identifier of companies like Amazon, Apple, and Alibaba before a lot of people uh, were really thinking about them. Uh, and it was more about the themes that was supporting the, the growth in those businesses. And uh, if you step back, thematic investing, uh, for those who aren't aware, is just identifying the biggest themes that are occurring around the world and then trying to find a way to invest into them, uh, which we kind of see as buying on potential rather than buying on history. So you compare that to, you know, value investing where you're looking at a PE ratio that tells you what happened in the past basically to what Nick does is finding themes that are actually going to allow companies to grow. Um, the themes can be anything from societal, demographic, environmental more recently and economic uh, and the big key there is with a, a link to, to some of the themes why we want to invest in them is that if you've been able to pick a key theme in the last 10 or 20 years has delivered the strongest long-term compound returns. So that's returns on returns. Some of the examples, we said Amazon, Apple before, so smartphones, digital payments, e-commerce, uh, computing power, I think we'll go into in this session. Um, and ultimately, as we see at the moment, most of the themes are occurring overseas. Uh, so the strategy is you can hold Aussie from memory, but uh, it's very much a, a long, long, short global 
equity equity manager. That's where the, the best opportunities are. So back to you, Jamie, with the quick fire questions. All right, Nick, we need quick quick answers. One, two, three words, uh, 10 questions in total. Try to get through them in a minute. So first question, what is the best stock you've ever bought? Yeah, it's probably Amazon. Uh, we, we found it in 2013. Um, we've made more than 15 times our money since then. 15 times. What is your biggest investment regret? Not buying more Amazon, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, to be fair, I, I looked at this before. I do think it is Tesla, actually. Um, Tesla, Jesus. It frustrates me because it, it sat there in plain sight for so long and so many doubters and it was something we should have been brave enough to take on. What's the one red flag for any investment? No alignment. Um, management has to own a lot of stock. You, you, if management's not aligned with the outcome, then they can't execute on it. And and there's only going to be a couple of winners, so you need you need management to be aligned on the outcome to execute. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Tend to agree. What is the most important ratio you use? Uh, price to cash flow. Um, usually, at some point in the future. Um, so it mightn't be next year, but at some point in the future, how much cash can the company generate? Pineapple on pizza. <laughs> short I'm Australian I'm, I'm not Italian I'm okay with the pineapple <laughs> name one belonging from your youth you still wish you had I'm struggling with this one um, I, I, my Lego collection did burn in the fire in the Black Saturday fires did it, yeah. I had a family Lego. place up north so my entire Lego collection I couldn't pass on to my children isn't that a good business Lego yeah uh, best investment for Armageddon USD Bitcoin government bonds gold or maybe a short position in the S&P? Uh, look, I'd go actually go Bitcoin, I'll be honest. Um, you know, it's a good example today, you know, digital cash. Yep. We, we're going to need it in the future. Something's going to win. It could be Bitcoin. Yeah, be, best region to invest in today? It's a toss up between the US and China. You've got to go with the biggest countries because that's how you find the biggest TAMs. I'd probably still lean to the US for now. You can only hold one stock. Let's just say you're retired today and you can hold one stock for the rest of your retirement. What is it, Nick? It's probably Alibaba. Alibaba, okay. And if you had to short just one position, any stock in the NASDAQ 100, what would it be for the next 12 months? Um, probably Intel, um, just the classic disrupted like like, yeah. like ibm before them <laughs> they've just been disrupted and they're, they're going to get left behind okay all right thanks nick drew yeah maybe nick just a quick introduction on your career uh time at k2 and before that and why you started munro uh how was it six years ago now yeah and, and thank you for your introduction drew because you, you pretty much yeah you got it 100 percent right i mean we we were spent 10 years at and prior to my time at k2 i spent a lot of time in edinburgh scotland actually um, and we looked at a lot of fund managers there. My wife's from there and I, I lived there for a long time. And if you, go to, if you go to Edinburgh, Edinburgh has these fund managers that are around for over a hundred years in many cases. Um, they run hundreds of billions of dollars, yet the city is smaller than Geelong. Um, and so how do they do this? They sit in a very far away place and take really long-term views. And um, that's what I was doing in Melbourne with K2. And, and we were getting them right more often than we were getting them wrong. Um, and we were we came to this realization that the, the wins were coming from just a few exceptional ideas, not, not trading stocks or being over or underweight sectors. And so what we wanted to do when we launched Munro is to really focus on that process a lot more and, and build it into something that 
we think clients need, which is a global growth investor. And I think you summed it up perfectly. If you're trying to find these few exceptional companies, in all probability, the majority of them are going to be outside of Australia. Um, yeah. And we just wanted to solve that problem for people in Australia. That's why we set up Munro. Excellent. Maybe a good way to start is how do you how do you find the themes, um, and then we can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so, and and I am going to try and share a screen here if that's okay, just because because it's just one thing that really sort of sets up the conversation to sort of explain to people, and so hopefully this works out. If it doesn't work out, then um, let me know. But um, if I just go to here, and I promise I'm not going to do lots of slides, but it is one slide that you, you just referred to it in your introduction. I think it sums it up perfectly, and I know this is skipping past people's eyes a little bit, but I'll stop on the one I want, which is there. Um, you talked about smartphones and everybody on this call will remember that moment when they probably sat at a dinner party and someone pulled out an Apple iPhone and, and they started searching the internet on their phone. And up until that time, a telephone couldn't do that. Um, and so when we're looking for these opportunities, we are looking for these S-curve type opportunities. This is an S-curve. So your mobile phones, you used to sell 1.6 billion Per annum, you now sell 1.7 billion phones per annum. Apple's just launched the iPhone 12. So phones don't grow. The economy is not going to grow. The economy hasn't grown. It's probably not going to grow much in the future. Economic growth, 1%, 2%, to 3% tops. But smartphones go from a 10% share to an 80% share in just a 10-year period. And Apple goes from $100 billion in market cap here, and it's a niche product, to $2 trillion in market cap here. Um, and more importantly, in the, in, the, in the feature phone market, it kills Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, mm. um, HTC, you name it, along the way. And so this is the opportunity we are looking for time and time again when we talk about structural growth or use, use say thematics. Um, how do you find one of these S-curves that's at the start? Because that gives you, as you summed up perfectly, the potential to be one of these great companies in the future. They, not all of them will be, but, but that's what we're looking for, that potential to have this great opportunity in the future. So that's what we're looking for. Excellent. I think maybe we step back, Jamie. You always like to still go top down and, and discuss how it's a long short and you call it an absolute return strategy. So maybe some, some insight into how you use I mean, the longs are pretty self-explanatory, how you use the short positions um, and, and what absolute return means to you. So you're investing capital on behalf of all our clients. How do you, do you use the absolute return to protect from negative returns? Do you, do you use stop losses? Maybe some insight into that. Yes, a question for me even, or for Jamie? Maybe yeah. um, even one step uh, back. I think there's a question for you. But so... Um, people that are listening to this essentially they're our clients they would have seen Munro for a long period of time uh, you hold a, a equal position with another fund manager that is getting exposure to to growth companies um, unlike that other manager you're a long short manager and 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 a lot of investors I think also advisors don't really know what long short is and what what you actually do so you have a pool of investments let's just start there pool of investments of shares how many shares would you have in your portfolio Nick uh, we've got roughly 30 between 30 and 50 and what's the universe you look at out of that what, what's your selection the global equity universe the global yes, equity a universe. couple thousand is it yeah, oh, so we have a smaller universe of 1,000, but there's actually 30,000 companies listed in the world. So we have a smaller universe of 1,000 companies that we think have a potential to be these, these few winners. Yep. And, and out of that, we pick 30 to 50, usually across a range of areas of interest or, or, or themes. And what's the biggest weight you can hold in one stock? 
Okay, so that, that's relatively straightforward. Most of the investors on the call have bought stocks before, held them and exited. Most of them have bought a, a unit fund where you buy units when you want to exit. The unit price is the sum of all the parts or all the underlying shares. So can you just walk us through how you use shorts to add to, add to your product and what, yep, what as a mum and dad investor, short is? 100%. So I'm going to share again just quickly here because um, there's, there's, it's some fairly complicated it's it's not it it sounds a bit scary, but it's not that it's not that complicated when you think about it. Um, so this is just a good picture that we use to try and explain it. And so, so as Jamie points out, you know there are normal mutual funds in the world, normal growth managers, and and they do the stuff in white, and we do that as well, which is we have an investment team that follows an investment process. Uh, we basically pick stocks with very high conviction. Uh, we happen to be growth equity, so as Jamie just mentioned, you know thirty to fifty companies on the whole planet very high conviction, trying to find these few exceptional winners that we're looking for. Um, the, dip, the bit about downside protection is the stuff in yellow. So this is the stuff we can do that some managers can't do, which is the ability to short sell. So that's to make money out of a company that goes down. But you could also do it, for instance, on futures. So if you were worried about, say, COVID or, or some other major issue at the US election, you could short NASDAQ futures to protect your underlying portfolio to a certain extent. So that's the ability to short. Um, second thing is you can just hold cash. So every investor on the school can just hold a bit more cash and we can do it as well. Uh, third thing is to buy a put option on the market. So this was very successful for us earlier in the year and I'll, I'll show you some examples in a second. And the last thing we can do is we can, we can maybe hold a bit more US dollars so we can tilt more towards US dollars of protection. But it really revolves around this thing called the capital preservation mindset. So while you'll often look at our product versus the market, we're actually not trying to beat the market. We're just trying to make you an absolute return through the cycle. And so the number we say is better than 10% per annum on a three to five year view. So if you think about over the next three to five years, we should be able to achieve 10% per annum because the stuff in white will help us pick these great companies and the stuff in yellow will, will hopefully stop us stuffing up along the way. Um, and ultimately that's gonna give you that outcome. And then you can only judge us on that outcome by the fact that we've managed to do that now for a 15 year period, we've done more than a double digit return over that long period of time. And so that's what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, so maybe an example, I remember sitting there during the Trump-Biden, no, not Trump-Biden, who was it last time? Um, Trump-Clinton. Trump-Clinton election, uh, the other one, so fresh in the mind. So you, I mean, every, no one knew exactly what was going to happen, but you managed to, one, cut losses when the market initially fell and then ensure you're, you're part of the rebound and you've kind of been able to do the same in March this year. Can you explain the, the kind of tools you used? Yeah, so I'll just show you one more picture. So, so what Jamie's, I'm oh, sorry, Drew's referring to, and it's it's very, um, it's a little bit complicated, but this is like the net exposure of our fund over time. So it's not always fully invested. It's, and at the moment it's about 80% invested, but going into COVID here is around 90% invested, okay? So it's important to recognize generally when something goes wrong, most people don't see it coming. And I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to put up my hand and say, I did not see, I did not expect to be here in, in mid-October talking to you over a Zoom screen because a virus from bats <laughs> mutated in Wuhan and basically locked us all up, okay? I'm going to put my hand up and say, I didn't see that one coming. Um, okay? It's more about what you can do about it. And, and the fund allows you to do things about it. And so, so from that point of view, you'll see our exposure drops very quickly. And you'll see this is our short exposure at the bottom going up. Uh, and we're not selling the whole portfolio. We're just protecting the portfolio with with, as I said, futures and put options. And then ultimately the hardest bit is actually not protecting the fund because that's very much 
inbuilt into our processes. The, I don't lose money first, make money second. The harder bit is getting reinvested again. Um, and I can talk about that in a second. But one last thing, um, just to show you how this works. You know, this is the March quarter of 2020, which, which most people, since you're investors, would, would, have, would have experienced with us. Um, and so thank you for your support. And um, this is the December quarter 2018. And I think most of you would have been in through that period as well. Um, you know, the S&P fell 14% this quarter. The S&P fell 20% this quarter. So we're not immune to this. Our stocks go down. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it is equity investing. We are taking risk. The key to these shorts and these put options and the currencies is they provide offsetting returns. And so back in 2018, it added about 5% in offsetting returns to the minus 14. So you still have a minus 10% drawdown. In this case, it added more. So we actually made money in that March quarter, um, which, was, which, was a, which was a good result from the team. But, but it's important to stress that, you know, the circumstances are always different every time. And so the outcome will be different every time. But what, what doesn't change is the fact that we, we take the capital preservation seriously. Um, we have these tools and other funds don't. Uh, and we will always use them in the same way, which is i.e. to not lose money. Um, that's how we use them. It's just whether how successful they are can depend on the, on the circumstances. Yep. And, uh, did you include them because your money's invested in the fund as well? Is that, yeah. uh, is that part of it? <laughs> well, no, I think going back to the start, I probably didn't do this great in the introduction, is, is we set up the fund as an absolute return fund because that's how I run my own money. Yeah. Um, I, and I think most people on this call probably don't care that much if they beat the index or not. They just care that they make money and don't lose money. Um, that's what I care about when I run money. Um, and all my money's in the fund. And so... I just, I, I just take you back to another example. I did a similar event, I remember, all the way back in March 2000, sorry, in 2009. And this time we were physically together. We're all in a room down at Albert Park. And I was on one of these panels that Jamie talks about. And someone asked the guy on the right, you know, why didn't you, if you knew the market was stuffed or in trouble, why didn't you do anything? And he says, well, we did. We raised maximum cash. And they said, what's your maximum cash you can raise? And he said, 5%. Uh, we had to stay 95% in property trusts all the way through the financial crisis. And so yep. that's just a concept. The product that you've chosen is actually designed for an institutional investor who's got a 40-year time horizon. And I don't have 40 years left to live. I'm, well, maybe I do, hopefully. But, but most people you know, have different time horizons. And so what they're more concerned about is not losing money first and making money second. And so that's why we set the product that way. And is that a different mindset being able to shorting? Does it require different risk management to, to going long only and only being able to hold 5% cash? <laughs> um, yes, it, I mean, it does. Yes, so we run, um, and, I, and I showed this back here and I won't go and into it. Not everyone's Last, equipped to do it necessarily. Oh, sorry, I should use. Yeah, the short selling, we do run these things called stop losses. So we have stop losses at the stock level. So... So this is, for instance, say you decided to invest in smartphones and you just thought BlackBerry was going to be the greatest thing in the world and, you know, the little keyboard was going to win. Well, guess what? It wasn't, okay? It was the other one. So there's stop losses on the stocks. They work on the long side and the short side. And the stop losses on the shorts are much tighter than the stop losses on the longs. And you just need to be really disciplined about how you do it. But it's important to stress that, you know, over the journey of our fund returns, and since I'm here, I'll go there just really quickly. Um, Sorry, um, you know, what we talk about, so this is the performance of our fund and you'd get this in the monthlies um, and the quarterlies that hopefully the guys distribute. Um, but, but we really are trying to get that double digit per annum return through the cycle. So at the moment it's 17%. Uh, we're trying to do it with a beta lower than the market. So i.e. Your, your volatility is lower than the market. 
but if we look at the 91% that we've made in the four years that Munro's been running, you know, about 6% or 7% of that's come from shorts. So it's important to remember that shorts are helpful, uh, particularly in down markets, but it's very hard to make amazing returns out of a short purely for the fact that a short can only fall 100%. It can't mm. fall any more than that. It's impossible. Whereas a long can go up thousands of percent. And so we think about shorts as, and my old boss used to use this expression, it's a bit like your left foot. Um, it helps if you can kick with your left foot sometimes. It's very helpful, but, but you kick better with your right. And so most of our returns come from our long investments. I was listening to someone yesterday that said, poor performing long positions become less of an issue, poor performing short big positions become a bigger issue. Oh, yes. No, no, most definitely. No, you need to be very mm-hmm. careful with it. Um, and um, it's, it's funny. It should, be, it should be an easy thing to do because most companies actually fail. So most companies actually go to zero. Um, but in reality, they die like cockroaches very slowly. And so always, there's always someone who's going to try and turn it around. And so it is, it is a, it's a much more harder discipline to focus on. And, and remember, the upside's nowhere near as big as the upside on a long could be. Did you want to head in the areas of interest direction, Jamie? Uh, maybe uh, I want to recap on, you've been fantastic at identifying the themes over the last 10 years and, you know, they're still playing out now. And I think the the whole world now knows these themes and there's a big rush to the likes of Amazon and Alibaba and Facebook, etc. The next 10 years, um, how do you identify those themes? Have you thought about the sub-themes that are emerging? I got involved in um, actually a a stock that Drew wouldn't shut up about last (laughs) Last week, week. which was Trade Desk and that programmatic advertising, which is basically taking the world by storm. I mean, we're even using it now. Um, That seems to be a theme that's playing out. Um, How do you develop these new themes? And is that obviously where where uh, investors in your fund and we've seen what you can do historically and it's all thematic based. So how do you keep identifying the new themes going forward? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a great question. So I'll, I'll go back to this example again and, and please stop me if you don't want, if you want me to stop sharing slides, but what's interesting about this slide, right? So we, um, <laughs> well, we, we can't, can we? Cause no, you've, yeah. got control. <laughs> <laughs> you've got the remote. You can guys. You can. But anyway, I just say, stop sharing slides. Nick. Um, but it's a fascinating thing about this slide. So this is our own internal data that we built on, on the Apple scenario. So it's all about finding this S-curve, right? And so on this S-curve opportunity, we, we bought Apple in 2010. Um, it follows this S-curve for a very long period of time and, and ultimately gets to a peak eh, where everyone has a smartphone. Um, and we made seven times our money on Apple. So it's our third best stock of all time in, in, in running money. Um, but amazingly, we sold it all in 2016. We sold it all. Um, we basically said, this has run out. There's no more iPhone penetration. There's nothing left to go for. Let's sell it. And we were right. They didn't sell any more iPhones, but they did sell all this other stuff on top services, of that, like yeah. pods and services and watches. And so ultimately, we were wrong on the stock. It continued to double. Um, and so the first thing I'd say, and ask your question, sometimes it's actually just making sure you monetize the ones you've got. Um, and you said something about Amazon earlier, you know, is it still, you know, not having enough Amazon, make sure you monetize the ones you've got. And so these are the other S curves we've been following for years. Um, and so we talked about e-commerce and so e-commerce as a share of regular commerce has gone from 0% to roughly 20% over 20 years. And, you know, this is what led us towards Amazon because we're, we're here in 2013 going, well, e-commerce is easily going to be 30 or 40% of what we do at some point in the future. 
So let's buy, let's find the company that's going to ride that tailwind. And that ended up being Amazon. And then all these other things came along like cloud computing and stuff that made it even better than what it is today. But every time we look at Amazon, it's still the biggest position in our fund um, because, because ultimately, you know, this runway still has a long way to go. And we've already learned the lesson from Apple. We probably shouldn't even be selling it when the runway runs out. Um, the other one that's really interesting about digital payments, you know, people have been saying for years that Visa and MasterCard are the winners from digital payment shift, yet it continues to work. And it continues to work because we're still only 60% through the card to cash shift. Now, I know here in Australia, I had to take cash to something this morning to a swimming coaching session and I was literally in my son's bedroom going through his wallet trying to find $20 because <laughs> I just don't carry cash anymore yep. um, and I wake him up and he said dad you're stealing my money um, <laughs> but, um, but the point is is you just have to understand that Australia is very advanced here if you go to places like Spain or the US etc it's still very much cash economy so even your Visa the MasterCard PayPal continue to win and then lastly coming to what you said about the trade desk etc so the trade desk is really just a company as you get to know these areas well, you you often find the next one. So, you know, digital advertising was this big shift that occurred in 2005, started with Google and search, then moved to Facebook in social. And it's now moved to everybody else moving to digital. So connected TV, think about Spotify, think about your podcast. So your podcast is, you might be listening to a US podcast, but it has an Australian ad in it. Mm. How, did, how did that happen? What, what software are they using to do it? And that's what the trade desk does. Um, and so what we're saying there is saying, well, we saw this happen for Google and then we saw it happen for Facebook. What's the next one? And the next one is the trade desk. Um, and there it's, when we were buying it, it was like an $8 billion company. It's now a $30 billion company. So because it's got that massive untapped upside, it's, it's just roll on to the next one. Can you explain um, it in terms of the, the double grower concept? I think you talk about quite a bit. Yeah, so the double grower is, is, is really that your digital advertising continues to take share from regular advertising. Okay, so that's digital advertising gets a bigger form of budget than maybe a billboard or a newspaper article or a TV ad. And the same as e-commerce. and um, Same as e-commerce. So you get that natural tailwind. And then even within that natural tailwind, you're taking share. Yeah. So programmatic, which is what Trade Desk does, take share within digital. So you're a double grower. And so their revenue, even though, so advertising grows at 3% per annum, because that's what GDP grows at. Digital advertising grows at around 15% per annum. And the Trade Desk grows at 30% per annum. Uh, that's what you're looking for. Um, and, then, and then, as you again pointed out at the start, the market has, has a lot of trouble pricing that. Because um, mm. they get, get trapped looking at a PE multiple. And it's not what the PE multiple is next year. It's what the company's worth five, 10 years from now. That's what you're actually paying us to work out here. Um, and the market just gets trapped looking too short term. Um, last area, since I didn't cover it, is the big one is, is cloud computing. So Zoom, you know. So Zoom, you know, all the, all the software, all the software that's coming along. And then just, just a final point. So these are the ones we know about. And so I just want to ask you a question, Jamie. The ones that are new that are coming along Yes. Are things like healthcare. So this is the shift to biologic drugs, the shift to drugs you grow rather than the shift you make you make, um, the shift to you know pandemic prevention in the future, uh, the shift to mRNA vaccines. So this is a big bet in the fund today, and I can show you in a second. And the last one that's super exciting is, and we've spoken about this before, Jamie, is really the decarbonisation of the planet. You know, we're effectively right at the start of this. Um, multiple areas of the world are committing to being zero carbon by 2050. 
And that doesn't mean they're going to reduce less carbon. That means they're going to produce no carbon. Um, it is going to cost them trillions of dollars. Um, and you really are at the start of this process. And some countries are, are near the end, but most of the world's at the start. And so that's an S-curve that's going to create these huge champions, which is why, you know, the frustration about Tesla that we talked about earlier. Hmm. Probably not something that fits in the fun, but like Afterpay would be an example in Australia. Classic example. Where there's a buy now, pay later sector that's growing and then you've got eight people enter it and they're all growing market share or trying to grow market share at the same time. Yeah, classic. I mean, there's a good chart that's not in this deck that I, I, I show you, but, but it's essentially just fintechs taking share from banks. And there's lots of different ones. There's PayPal, there's Afterpay, there's yeah. Zip, you know, there's Square, hmm. um, there's Ingenico in, in Europe. They're listed in all different countries around the world, but they're all doing the same thing, which is saying, here's a big bank with lots of fees for something that I don't need to pay those fees and let's just chip away at those fees over time. And that's what they do. Yep. Excellent. So, I know there's, you go, Jamie. No, you're up. Go. <clears throat> I was going to talk about overvaluation. So there's, or valuations, not overvaluations. I want to tilt yep. your, your answer. Uh, you know, every day you pick up the paper and the s and overvalued or the NASDAQ's overvalued. Um, is there a view on that? Should people be concerned investing into into Munro, or how do you manage that? Um, yeah, so I've, I've got I've got two probably answers here, and, I'll, and again, I'm going to share a picture. <laughs> uh, on a PE overvalued, but yeah. So let's 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 talk about that. Um, so the way we think about it is, we look at this thing called the equity risk premium. Um, and this is something that I'd encourage. And everyone on this call has got this problem, effectively. The equity risk premium is, okay, the market may look expensive on a PE of 22. And, and you know, historically, that would be expensive, correct. But what's it look like versus bonds? What's it look like versus cash? What's it look like versus the alternatives? Um, and so what we do here is we take one divided by the PE of the S&P 500, which is roughly 22 times. So that's, or assuming it's 20 to make the math simple, that's a 5% earnings yield for owning equities. So one divided by the PE is a 5% earnings yield for owning equities. And then if you subtract the US 10-year bond rate, which is currently 77 basis points, you're getting a 400 basis point carry for owning equities today. And a 400 basis point carry versus, versus, versus history is good. Um, it actually makes equities look cheap. Um, if you're worried about a 1999 style, that's when you're paying for growth above the carry. You're actually getting a carry here. The same way to think about this is if you're buying a property um, and your rental yield is above your mortgage yield. Um, that's a carry for owning the property and, and you get the growth for free. Um, equities are the same here. And you, and, and, and you might be getting it on a dividend yield, but the earnings yield is above the interest-free rate. So you're getting a carry. Um, Does that mean everything so falls when interest rates go up? Yeah, it does, basically. Yeah, if interest rates went up dramatically, <laughs> the market will fall. It will. So there's two ways this equation breaks. One, either earnings go down a lot, which we sort of had with COVID already. So let's assume that's in consensus already. Um, and two, interest rates go up a lot. Um, and and the, the bit that COVID's done is it makes it very hard to envisage a world where interest rates go up a lot. Mm. Um, because the last thing I'd say is, you know, People get this very confused. The equity market is not the economy, okay? It's just not. Get over it. 
Okay, <laughs> the amount of people who sit there and try to explain to me that the economy is no good and the equity market's bad, it's just not true. This is your top 10 in the US today. They make up 31% of the S&P. This is their five-year trailing sales growth. You know, the, every single one of these companies is growing aggressively outside of J&J, aggressively faster than, than GDP because they're mm. taking share. And in many cases, that was the same slide in 2018. You know, they've accelerated. Amazon's accelerated its growth as it's got bigger. Microsoft's accelerated its growth as it's got bigger. So it took it being uh, a small business rather than a big business recession and people with cash and ability to, to cut costs will come out stronger. Yeah, and so the very sad fact about COVID is you're right, it is a small business recession. It's a man on the street recession. Um, inequality was there before. Inequality gets worse in a post-COVID world. Um, there will be consequences for that in the future. I'm not saying there won't be. But right now we need these big companies to keep hiring people to keep growing because we need to get out of this recession. And so, so what all I'm saying is it's hard to see a world where these interest rates are going to go up when the deficit spending is so big and, yeah. the, man, and, the, and, the, and the, the, stat, the electorate needs low rates. And so the equities become these free riders um, and growth equities become the ultimate free riders because they're winning in this environment. They're not even less bad in this environment. They're actually accelerating. Uh, and so that's why they've done so well. Um, the question is, your question is, when will it stop? And our answer is the mass suggests not anytime soon. And then you've always got the ability to do some protection, which we discussed at the start. Correct. And so assuming everything I just said is wrong, like it was when COVID came along, when I was walking around saying, oh, we've seen these things before, it's not a big deal. Um, assuming everything you say is wrong, then we have the discipline in place to, to move to the sidelines. Um, but, but this is how we see it today. But it's important to stress, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, right? We don't really know what's going to happen in the long run. I'm reasonably confident Amazon's a bigger company five years from now. But, but you know, this is a difficult time and that's why those downside protection tools are helpful. But this is how we see it today. Got it. I thought maybe uh, I was just thinking then about you've got a long only and a long short strategy. What's yep. the split of investment between the two? So obviously one doesn't have the short positioning, but it would still have the stop losses. What's your, where's all the money invested? Where's your money invested? <laughs> yeah, so both strategies um, are basically, you know, so, so as I showed you earlier, all the long only has is it doesn't have the downside protection tools. Yeah. So it just stays fully invested all the time in a number of these key themes we've talked about. And it stays, the only other difference is it's fully unhedged. So it, it, it just, wherever the currency goes, Whereas in the absolute return, because we're trying to hit that 10% outcome, we do, we do like to keep the fund at least 50% hedged most of the time um, because we're trying to give you 10% per annum or better in Australian dollars, um, not in some other currency. And the fee structures on both funds work the same, Nick? Yeah, so the fee structures are on the management fees um, are slightly lower for the long-only fund because you're, you're not paying for the downside protection. So it's 1.35% on the long short and 1.1% on the long only. And then both of them have performance fees, but, but one's a performance fee versus the market, which is a long only. So very much like Magellan. Um, yep. so, so our long only product, we'd happily compare against Magellan because Magellan's a long only manager as well. Yep. Um, the absolute return product or the long short product has an absolute performance fee. So it's 10% above your highest point mm. and also above your hurdle. And the hurdle is what we think is an equity return, which is, Australian 10-year bond rate plus three and a half percent, and that's averaged eight percent over the last 30 years. I, I, I recognise it's lower than that, that now, but 
provided we're making you more than 8% per annum and staying above the high watermark, we can potentially charge a performance fee. Great. We might turn the conversation to stocks. Um, Drew, do you want to kick off with... Uh, yeah, I love the um, picks and shovels analogy. So we, you were kind of referred to the old gold mining days, but in the new mining era, not Bitcoin mining, but in kind of digital computing and investing into the picks and shovels. Uh, who, who are they? Um, and why are they why are they important? Why are they why are they a double growing industry? Yeah. Okay. Um, let me. I'll show you one picture if that's okay. Sorry. So, so you mean companies that are involved in an expanding kind of supply chain, Drew? That are they're a part of you know making parts of the iPad or the iPhone rather than just buying Apple? Is that is that what you mean with it's, and shovels? Yeah. yeah. So. so what Drew's referring to is 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 so so we are. And I didn't show this slide at the start, but if you think about a world where there's very few winners, okay? So the companies, so, you know, there's one company that dominates search for the planet. There's one company that, a couple of companies that sell phones. There's even only two companies that can build an airplane that you mm. will knowingly get in, okay? So this is a game of few winners and lots of losers, okay? That's how equities work. Your goal is to find those few winners. Um, we happen to be living through the digital revolution right now. The digital revolution which you can see on the right here is driven by this thing called Moore's law. So Moore's law is really this function where over time they've managed to get more and more transistors onto a computer circuit. Um, and so you'd start here in 1971 with 2000 transistors on your computer circuit. And every two years it would double. So 2000 would go to 4,000, 4,000 go to 8,000, 8,000 go to 16,000, uh, 16 goes to 32. And now we're in 2020 where Nvidia can build a transistor with, with oh, sorry, an integrated circuit with 54 billion transistors on it, okay? And so it is this accelerating compute power that is driving all of this disruption. So if you think about it, the internet's just getting faster. And as the internet, because of Moore's law, as the internet gets faster, it can do more things. So it can search internet, eventually it gets on your phone, eventually it does e-commerce, eventually you can stream video. And here we are at the software bit where Zoom. So all of us have been on a video conference that was a disaster, okay? about three, four years ago, mm. computers get faster, suddenly it works and that creates Zoom out of thin air, right? Just literally out of thin air. And Zoom's market cap is now bigger than every single listed airline in the world. Mm. And I'm not sure that doesn't make sense. <laughs> that, that potentially makes sense if you think about how quick that disruption happened. Yep. Now, what we know is Moore's law continues. Um, we know it continues for another 10 years. And what, what, what Drew's referring to is the reality there's actually only a few companies that help it continue. And so we know that that disruption will accelerate. And, and so we have this area here we call high performance computing because we know that the companies that can extend Moore's law will become you know, so valuable because they are the picks and shovel in driving this disruption. And so much value is being created by this disruption. So we want to own those picks and shovels. And so these are like the areas of interest in our fund. This is in our monthly every month or in our quarterly. And so if you do get it, please, please look. It just shows the weights that were invested in the number of holdings and some indicative stocks. And Drew's referring to these two here, which are high performance computing and connectivity. So this is how your machine goes faster and how you connect faster. Because those are the two things that drive basically your value creation in the future. And in high performance computing, to, to shrink the trips, it's getting harder and harder. There's only one company in the world that can do the shrinking of the lithography side, that's ASML, it listed in Holland. There's only two companies in the world that can build the chips. 
which are the foundry companies, which is TSMC and Samsung, and we own TSMC. And then there's literally only two or three countries in the world that can design semiconductors that perform at a better and better rate. And the one we own there is NVIDIA because they have the software that goes on the chip. And that's why I mentioned Intel as a short because Intel's going to get past here. They've already said they can't shrink at the rate that they thought they were going to. And on top of that, they can't do the software. And so AMD and NVIDIA will go past them. And so those are the three there. So they're the faster computers. And then the how you connect to them is really, again, here in connectivity. So this is your broadband internet service, which is Charter, or Qualcomm, which makes you 5G modems, um, or Avago, that effectively is just a chip manufacturer that goes everywhere. And, and, and we just see that as a great structural trend. None of these companies are even expensive. You know, the most expensive ones on 30 times earnings. And these kind um, of support artificial intelligence, don't they? So robots working by themselves within manufacturing plants, self-driving cars. It's kind of the, the infrastructure on which. Yeah, correct. So the simple assumption is we know this continues. So we know this will continue. So as we move beyond software, we're going to go into the sharing economy, which is already here. Then we're going to go to AI, robotics, and if you just think about a world where you're connecting every device in the world to the cloud, um, so if every device in the world gets connected through 5G to the cloud, and then all that data gets processed, we call it, we call it the sandstorm in the cloud. There's a sandstorm coming, uh, and that sandstorm all goes to silicon. You need a lot of chips, uh, and, you need a lot of storage. And, that, and that's what our bet is, quite simply, yeah. I think the a company... Uh, uh, when I was up in Wangaratta, I tried not to <laughs> mention that one. I listened to a book about Alibaba, so Jack Ma's biography. Yep. And that's kind of a more of a recent holding for you. Amazon's been there for a while. They, they call it the Chinese Amazon. Could you provide a bit of a thesis on Alibaba, what it does, why it's growing? Um, Jamie and I also love Van Financial. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so i won't use slides here because i don't have any specific i could show you the amazon slides they're basically the same <laughs> as the, the alibaba slides um look there's this simple concept out there that um that if you think about everything that we've just made money out of for the last 15 years which is this disruption that i spoke about and these s curves into e-commerce into digital payments into all these different areas and that that whole 15 years started when google listed in 2005 pretty much for me personally and then, you know, went all the way through Google, went through Facebook, went through software, went through online, um, went through Netflix, uh, now into the SaaS companies and now into the thing. And so effectively, my entire funds management career has effectively been made up of understanding how this would work and getting better at it. Mm. Um, we now have this situation where the US and China are basically not going to cooperate on technology, period. Okay, just get used to it. It's not going to happen. Um, mm. And so the Chinese are going to build the entire tech stack themselves. Um, and at the top of that stack will be Alibaba. And below that will be Tencent. And then below that will be Ant Financial, which is the effectively the PayPal of China, Alibaba being the Amazon of China. And then underneath that, we've still got to find who's going to be China's Microsoft, who's going to be China's Salesforce.com, who's going to be China's um, Trade Desk, mm. who's going to be China's, um, who's going to do, you know, the Chinese... Um, semiconductor stuff that we just talked about. And so there's all these pieces of the puzzle still to build out. Um, and China is going to be a bigger economy than the US at some point in the future. And it's got significantly more people. Um, so you have this opportunity to do the whole thing again. Um, you just have to get over the fact that it's a communist country. Um, and, you know, 
be confident that they will allow open up the capital markets, which every intention of doing, and they're showing this by listing Alibaba in Hong Kong and listing Ant Financial in Shanghai. So, so we just when we look at China, we just see the opportunity to do the same thing again for the next twenty years. What is and, what is and Alibaba, Alibaba will be at the top of that. Yeah, so they're they're T Mall. They're kind of like Amazon was when they. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't answer the question, did I? So Alibaba, <laughs> Alibaba's at the top of that because Alibaba is the largest online platform in the in China. So roughly fifty percent of e-commerce sales in China go through Alibaba. And what numbers? Uh, what numbers that for a comparison uh, to Amazon? Uh, in terms of billions, it, it's on GMV. It's a higher GMV. It's a lower GMV. So it's a lower number that goes through. So Amazon's around two hundred seventy billion. It's yep. lower than that, but their take on that is bigger. Um, GMV being gross merchandise. Gross though, merchant, so the value merchant of, value. Yep. And then on top of that, they're building the cloud business, the same as Amazon did. And I can assure you that most Chinese companies will not go on Amazon's or Microsoft's cloud. They'll go on Alibaba's cloud. So secondly, you get the cloud business. Thirdly, you get, um, you get um, the food delivery businesses, the supermarket businesses, all the other things, you know, the delivery heroes, all the things that have been built in the Western world are now being built in China. And they're generally either either an Alibaba umbrella or a Tencent umbrella. So they're the first two you go to. But Alibaba's advantage here is that it's got this huge online platform, which basically brings people in because that's how they sell their merchandise. They then bring in and financial, which is how you do payments. And they then bring in the cloud and the delivery and everything else on top of that. So it is just this, it's this whole ecosystem um, that basically is just the simple and easy way to buy the fact that China is probably going to be the biggest economy in the world in the long run. And we drew, drew and I saw the um, about three years ago, we were in Hong Kong and we're at a conference and the, the CEO of Ant Financial presented and uh, <clears throat> it's just phenomenal. The amount of data or they were using big data to assess home loans. Um, I think everyone on Alibaba had a cash account that was earning, <clears throat> earning money. Uh, they would assess your credit through big data every day. And then you would have your credit limit on the right-hand side. If so if you need to draw down for uh, any reason at all, you could basically be pre-approved for a loan. Um, phen phenomenal business, you know, basically starting a bank from scratch five years ago, building it right, rather than using, you know, what all the banks in Australia have got to do over the next 20 years is change, you know, is change what they've historically done. But building a new business like Ant is super exciting. Yeah, correct. And so this is this optionality that comes when you have a platform. You just keep adding things to it and it keeps getting better. Um, I can show you ones. Uh, I won't show you the slide, but there is, you know, that's what's going to happen with Alibaba. But the last thing just to say on this is, is, is it's important to remember that in, at least in the Chinese case, the government's behind them. You know, they want to build these national champions. They're not trying to break them up mm. like they are in the US, if that makes yep. sense. In other countries, yep. they, they want these companies to be national champions. They're going to get behind them. And so, so those issues out there. And in most cases, when we look at these companies, they're usually cheaper on a multiple basis than their US equivalent. Um, because of the China thing versus US thing. Um, and that doesn't make mathematical sense. They should be more expensive. But growing at similar rates too, or even faster. No, growing faster. Yeah. Growing much faster. Is Alphabet a holding in the portfolio? It is. It's a 3%. It's a less than 3% holding now. So Facebook yep. and Google have slipped down the ranking for us. They're not in the top 10 anymore. We still hold them. Um, is there any concerns? There was a, an anti antitrust suit launched overnight but the shares went up the, the yeah US i saw that justice department is <laughs> yeah saying they're colluding with apple to to dominate search it's a bad sign isn't it 
It's a bad sign. I've owned these stocks in many cases for more than a decade, and I can never remember them going up when they had a DAG uh, <laughs> investigation announced. Uh, but I suppose it's a sign of the times. You know, I the efforts to break up the company are not as bad as the other 10 times they've tried to do it. Um, look, I think these companies are fine in the long run. They're, I'd put them in the same camp as Apple that we don't own. Um, you know, they're great investments, um, but they you know, will. that they're super big companies at some point, you know, there's just better opportunities elsewhere. Um, and, they'll keep, they'll keep being, the regulation is likely to keep increasing. And that's probably why the Chinese start to look attractive doing the same thing in a, in a more supportive uh, policy environment. Correct. But I would still stress the regulation will not stop them in yeah. the long run. I still don't think it stops them, but, but I, I agree that some investments look more attractive than they do at the moment. And have you got a favorite in the portfolio while we've still got some time left? Of the big ones or the small ones? Well, usually the small ones are the bigger favorites, aren't they? Software as a service, without doubt. Um, people, people, and so it's that last bit of the slide that, so, so if, if you looked at, sorry, I'll just share the screen again, just really quickly. Could you define software as a service maybe as well? Yeah, yeah. So, so if, you, if you follow this, what we're trying to show you on this slide, it's basically how the internet getting faster, Moore's law getting faster, allows more things to happen, okay? So, you know, you start with search, gets on your phone, gets an email, get e-commerce, payments, streaming, video games. So video game industry was transformed by the internet. Um, software is the big one today. Uh, obviously everyone knows Microsoft um, and clearly it's gone from something that you hate to something that you can't live without yeah. uh, in, in a very short <laughs> space of time. Uh, and that's just how the cloud has transformed Microsoft. And, you know, as, as you know, the guys have executed very well at Microsoft, but they had this amazing lead and, and, and so it becomes so useful. So now as you go down that stack here, you know, what else is going to be as big as Microsoft and our opinion, quite a lot. Um, so Salesforce, if you think about it, so the reason why Microsoft's so big is because it's enterprise software for the world. That's what a digital company can do, not just for the US, for the whole planet. Salesforce could end up being the CRM for the world. And so when we talk about SaaS, it's like you don't buy the software and install it. You just go to the subscription. Mm. Um, and the subscription, it's so cheap and so easy to adopt. Um, Zero is a great example. In and Australia. so hard to leave as well. And so hard to leave because it comes integrated in everything you do. And so if you think about this, software will be a bit like your over-the-top streaming service. So you've got Netflix and maybe three or four others. Most businesses, your business and my business, and, and let's face it, neither of us run large organizations, but we're, we're, we're basically, we'd have at least three or four software yeah. subscriptions at the moment, maybe mm. five. Um, and you just got to think about who these five might be and then think about if they do that for the planet, how big they could be. Um, and from that point of view, you know, Zoom, Atlassian, ServiceNow, really at the start of that journey today. And as computers get faster, software will get better. So they'll be able to upsell, et cetera, along the way. Um, is that a requirement to be in the fund as well? It has to be cross-border or you're comfortable doing it when it's in a single country and then... The best ones will always be cross-border. Yeah. So, the, you know, if Zero had stayed in New Zealand, it wouldn't be the best company. It wouldn't <laughs> be the company it was going to be today. So the, the best ones... They need to work on a global level. If, if, if a company comes to tell you that they're the Australian version of X, do not go anywhere near it, okay? Hmm. The Australian version of X is basically saying we're not good enough to be the global version, which means you're going <laughs> to lose. Um, you need to be able to do this at a global scale. Now, once you pick your theme and then you pick your stock, and essentially you're trying to back the number one group, 
right? Uh, number one wins at the end. So something like Zoom, where we didn't use video conferencing just 12 months ago, and now everyone's using it. Zoom's got a good market share, but so... And, and now come the competitors, you know, I saw um, Google has now got yep. a very much a Zoom version, which is being pushed onto us by Google. And then, you know, you've got a Microsoft version in Teams as well. Do you ever reassess who you back? Um, you know, so if you say, well, Zoom makes sense now, but in six months or 12 months time, it might be a totally different landscape. How do you, and I suppose if I think about Apple and you go back to when, um, you know, you had Ericsson and um, uh, Nokia. Nokia, I mean, that was so dominant. No, no I know. Ever yeah. think that they were ever going to be, you know, pushed out, but it was the fourth guy apple that basically won it and i suppose streaming is a bit like that do, do you keep reassessing who's going to be the winner or we do a- we we track it very closely but the reality is is we generally try to wait until one's clear winner yeah and apple was actually a clear winner by 2010 2011 <laughs> you can still make a lot of money from then onwards um and we generally zoom is is clear winner at the moment in that yes space? i do yeah, actually okay. yeah i mean the, the only problem zoom's got is the valuation but I can't see anyone catching them from here um, because, because, because the last thing I'd say here is there's network effects. Um, and so, so you and I can start a search engine today, uh, but you're not going to break Google's 80% share of search. Um, there used to be 11 search engines. There's now only one. Um, so do you remember Ask Jeeves, Yahoo, um, yeah. AltaVista, et cetera? Look smart. All of them, right? Australian version. Of- Look smart. Yeah, the Australian <laughs> version. Um, the point is, ultimately, you know, network effects meant that everyone was on Google, so everyone had to look at Google, so everyone was on Google, so everyone looked at Google. And so round and round it goes until Google becomes 80% share. Yep. Zoom will be exactly the same. Yep. In the same way that we're all on Microsoft because – you know, it's it's tough to run a Mac. It is. I mean, I know you guys probably run a few Macs, but but it's tough to run Macs. Most people yep. run on Microsoft. And even if you buy a Mac, you probably buy Microsoft. Um, most people in the sales industry will use Salesforce uh, with a bit of luck, the Victorian government's even, really, even realizing this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'll keep that as a private joke. Um, and, and so most people are realizing very quickly that their video conference, you will not host a video conference on WebEx because it won't work and your yeah. customers will get upset. Zoom's the same. So, so Zoom's problem is the valuation. The big one that's on that slide, so if I had to pick the one stock that I would flag on that slide, it's Atlassian or ServiceNow. And Atlassian's actually an Australian company listed in the US, but Atlassian ServiceNow are, are really those, those ones that, that really could be the next big thing in software. Uh, and Atlassian, I think, is probably higher risk, higher return from here. Um, but they've really got the right idea. And what does ServiceNow do? So Atlassian and ServiceNow. So ServiceNow, is, it's basically like Salesforce for IT. So help okay. desk queries, et cetera. How do you manage your IT structure? So it's a massive work from home beneficiary. Atlassian's a fascinating company because it's effectively collaboration software. And so there isn't really a software project in the world or, you know, like think about you know, SpaceX going to the moon, et cetera. All of these things that need to be done usually involve collaboration software, this work from home, this ability to work in the cloud with yep. each other. Text messaging be- between teams and... Correct. And at Atlassian gives their software away for free um, in many cases, which means they've built up this huge user base that can ultimately be monetized over time. Um, and so they, we, 
they're following, it's interesting, they're the first software company seen that's following effectively the same strategy that Facebook and Google followed, which is give your software away for free and monetize it later um, and make sure everyone's using it. And once everyone's using it, you know, so there's that great moment in the social network, if you've seen the movie with Facebook, you know, it's all the way back where they, they're doing the history of Facebook in 2010, where they say, should we put ads on Facebook? And they're like, no, don't put ads on it. Just let it get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we'll monetize it later. And that's what Atlassian's doing to software. And then we're, we're starting to see a few companies do this and they're definitely at the forefront of that. I think maybe a good question close to finishing off is, Key man risk is probably the, the <laughs> tough question as well. I had a comment about Lycra, and I think you're an avid cyclist. Um, how does the, have you been building the team up? You've been running for six years now. Um, yeah, so we have 50. So we're very lucky in the fact that the process that I sort of developed by myself 15 years ago, and then we added people at K2 who came across to Munro, and we've added people since. So we have 15 people now. Yeah. Um, and we can see that getting to 25 reasonably quickly. So I think we are getting better at this over time as a team. Um, and you mentioned the trade desk, you know, the trade desk was not my idea. That came from Kieran Moore and Hayden in the team. Um, but we ultimately pitched it as us on idea a year ago and it's, it's done very well. Um, so, so that's 15 people all on one strategy basically. So yeah, just... but there's some of those are operations. So, yeah. so yeah. Uh, but, but the investment team will continue to build, but yeah, we essentially only run the one strategy. Um, and we'll continue to grow and invest um, here in Melbourne, you know, so I was looking at new office space yesterday. It's my first time out of the house with my work permit that I was allowed to go look at office space. Um, was so, it cheaper, Nick? Was it cheaper? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the point is, is um, yeah, we, we hope to continue to build. If I do go under a truck and die, um, which would be a terrible thing. Um, it's important to remember the stocks don't know that I've gone under a truck. <laughs> um, you know, the Atlassian guys will still execute. Uh, the share price won't go down. Uh, and obviously we'd, we'd let investors know if something had gone wrong and, and then we'd let them make their choices, but their money will not disappear overnight. Just because That's one thing we, we compare to, start. sorry, we compare sorry, it to listed investment companies where, yeah. you know, if you're in a listed investment company and that happened, well, it might trade at a discount and you couldn't get a dollar for dollar back. Whereas in, in managed fund structure, you get the exact value of the shares on the day when you want it back. Correct. And, and like, if something goes wrong, we'd, we'd obviously be, we'd, we'd alert it to, we'd alert the investors and, and then you would give them advice and they'd make a choice, but they're not going to lose any money just because a key person's gone under. They'd have to make, it's a much more longer term decision that you'd have to make. Yeah. And running a business, a global business out of Melbourne, uh, I know that you used to spend a fair bit of time on a plane. Um, uh, talk to me about what COVID has meant to your business and is it, has it reduced your access? Has it made you a better investor? Will you be jumping on a plane as soon as you can get out of here to visit companies? Um, it's, there's pros and cons. So the pros are definitely Zoom. Um, Zoom with clients is great because it means less travel for the investment team, obviously, which is, I mean, you know, we, have hmm. to, we have to service our clients. They like to see us once or twice a year. Hmm. So that bit's gone down, which gives you more time to look at stocks. Um, second thing on the stock side, our access has got much better. So it's important to remember the management team or the IR is not going anywhere. And so, you know, we've owned Amazon for seven years and, you know, you're lucky if you get the librarian on the phone at Amazon, you know, or, or, or the third IR. I mean, they, they just, they just don't, they just don't talk to investors, but we now can, they're, they're, they're now taking our calls on a regular basis. And for the first time in years, you know, um, and, and, you know, even Zoom, you know, so we had, a, we've had, I've had three chats with Zoom since the crisis began. So, 
So the point is things are moving so quickly and our ability to get the information has gone up really fast. Um, mm -hmm. um, I'm worried about what's going to happen when we're allowed to take holidays again as well, because things are moving so fast. Having the whole team together all the time has been great. You know, it's definitely helped our performance um, because we're able to find these opportunities because things move quickly. We can then get the information quicker and we can execute quicker. Um, and Zoom's definitely changed that for the better. Um, in the long run, ultimately it's a relationship business. We do need to get back and meet people. We have a relationship already, so it's very easy to talk to each other. Most mm. of the people we talk to, we have a relationship already. But for new relationships, you can't do that. Um, you have to do that in person. And, and evolution of Munro, is there new products? Do you, do you, so the only thing we've got to flag to you is we hope to have a listed product on the stock exchange, which will be an exchange traded managed product. Okay. Under a code M-A-E-T. Um, and that'll be for the Absolute Return Fund. And we're hoping to have that before the end of the year. Um, the long only product, the Absolute Return product will stay the same. Uh, they'll just be listed, or sorry, not listed, quoted on the exchange um, at some point in the future. So this is very much in line with what Magellan's been doing in the space. And I think they've actually done a really good job. Um, and we just want to be there alongside them as, as effectively another choice. If you want a bit more growth, um, and if you want to, you know, you, you want to chase some of these themes that we're talking about. And Great. any view on the, to close out, any of you on the, the US election and does it even matter is probably my... Um, yeah, great question. Um, keep it short if we can. Provided, we there's a re <laughs> provided there's a result, it doesn't matter. Everyone's saying that. Um, well, and, but, but personally, you know, our portfolio slightly would prefer Biden, mainly because of our climate investments. And because of some of this Chinese stuff I talked about. So we would likely prefer Biden. But, you know, Trump was just more volatile, harder to deal with, but ultimately didn't stop the fund performing in the last few years. Yeah. Great. On, on behalf of Drew and I and Wattle Partners and all our clients, Nick, uh, not just thank you for today, but thank you for the effort you've put in for managing portfolios over the last five years. And we, um, we, we wish to continue that in the future. So thanks. No, well, thank you for your support. These guys, you guys were supported us on our very first day and, and, and we will never forget that. So thank <laughs> you very much for your support. Good on you, mate. R really interesting uh, last past hour. Thanks, Drew. Um, next week, we've got Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital talking about the outlook for domestic property, interest rates, and uh, also the Australian economy. So please join us next Wednesday. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Speak yeah, soon, bye. guys.